Hey everyone, this is our second last podcast of 2019. It feels like so much has happened this year, but before we close out, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who has supported us on Patreon to date. Patreon support lets us do so much stuff, which I talk about every episode in increasingly bizarre ways, so I'll spare you that today, but you can head to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and support us in tiers that range from 3 to 5 to $15 a month or more. It helps us a lot. Uh, I just want to thank everyone who has done it to date. Before we start, too, I just want to say that sadly we had to reschedule with Liberal Leadership Candidate Michael Coteau. We will be talking to him in the new year, and I'm very excited to tell you that we will be talking to Stephen Del Duca as well. So we'll have almost everyone in the Ontario Liberal Leadership race covered by the end of January, hopefully. I'm pumped. You should be, too. Okay, on the show. Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Sam Andrin. And today we are extremely excited to have with us Pat Sorbara. Pat has been a political operative for the provincial and federal levels for over 40 years. She has directed campaigns for premiers, opposition leaders, MPs, MPPs, leadership candidates. The resume of successful campaigns in there is too long to go through, but perhaps most notably leading Kathleen Wynne's successful 2014 campaign where she became the first woman elected premier of Ontario in a majority government. Uh, She was also at the center of one of the previous government's big controversies, and she's the author of a new book titled Let Him Howl, where she takes us through her life's work in liberal politics, and we are so pleased to have her on Ontario Lab. Sam, do you want to take the first question? Yeah, sure. Well, welcome, Pat. Uh, Thank thank you very much. I was listening to that intro and thinking I'm probably the perfect description of recovery. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's very fair. Um, So uh, Chris and I both uh, read the book, and uh, we were saying to ourselves, you know, there's precious few books that sort of describe the role of a political staff, even fewer set in an Ontario context. So it was fascinating reading for us. And maybe we'll just start with, you know, why did you decide to write this? Just two reasons I decided to write a book and particularly uh, Let Him Howl, this book. I think, um, and, and I like to say the title, Let Him Howl, Lessons from a Life in Backroom Politics. And it was partly that what you just said, there's not much out there on the backroom. Um, we read lots of bios about politicians and but there isn't too much that that tells about the life of a political staffer. And I dedicated the book to political staff because I really believe in the work that we have we have all done, looking at the three of us, over the years as 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 staff. I as I say in there, no government can run without a a great group of uh staff. But the other reason was my own personal story. Uh when I left the 2018 campaign and kind of found myself sitting at home. I just started writing the stories I'd been telling people for a long time and it developed into a book. You know, when I was at, I never, ever got a chance to tell the story, right? While I was investigated, I couldn't speak. While I was at trial, uh, I never had to defend myself. So this was my opportunity to tell the story start to finish. So in the book, you describe yourself and I think uh, fair to say you have a reputation as someone who drives yourself and others extremely hard. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that people don't understand about political staff work is just how grueling it is. Yeah. Lots of late nights, early mornings, very high expectations. Uh, you also share how being a woman shaped some of these negative perceptions. You have a little bit in the book about how your family was uh, an influence on your interest in politics. But we're curious about what do you think drives your particular style of operating in politics? So I, I think I say at one point, let them howl about a lot of people see politics as this, uh, well, one is a big unknown, but secondly, that it's chaos, right? It's hectic all the time. And it is. What I came to believe through my experiences was that 
Um, you can have discipline, you can have organization, you can, if you're really going to push through the amount of stuff that we have to push through in politics and in government, you have to have somebody sort of leading the leading the charge. So I just I just became a person who believed in that processes and protocol could work in politics as well as anywhere else. And that's what I started to become known for and started to institute in every every place I worked. It didn't matter. Opposition, party office, government, it didn't matter. I I worked to processes and protocols which kept the crises uh, at a minimum and you know we worked through problems and people hopefully learned as we went. So that's where it came from. And where the woman part comes into play was that there was lots of times when you're sitting at a table and you're asking those tough questions of people and saying, hey, shouldn't we be like, why are we even in this room? Or what what are we trying to achieve today? Why did we just spend an hour and not really come up with anything? You know, if there were some senior guys in the room or you were challenging people who had done this for a long time, you know, there'd be issues uh, and you'd hear about it later. Or sometimes you hear about it right in the room. So <laughs> I, I started to really toughen up around that because if I was going to keep the voice at the table, I had to be prepared to... Um, take on those fights, but also have the answers myself. I couldn't just challenge and not have a solution. So that's what I started to ask the same of people. If you're going to challenge, if you're going to be at the table, you better have done your homework and you better have solutions. In terms of those processes and those protocols that are maybe not always there in a political environment, but always but important to institute, you know, if you're advising someone who's looking to get into politics, what, what, what are some of the mechanics of those? What are, what are some of the things that you were like, this absolutely needs to be in every political office and I don't see it all the time? Well, the big thing is um, knowing who to involve in what discussions. You know, sometimes you would see junior staff come in and they're talking about, you know, what they're going to get organized for the breakfast meeting and they copy the minister. I mean, I'm not kidding. You've, you see it, right? And you're like, what? Because they want to show the minister they're doing their job because they don't really understand that the minister is really the last person that they're going to talk to about. Well, they'll never talk to the minister about that, <laughs> but, you know, about whatever the issue is. And so it, it's almost like teaching them, you know, that I, I didn't ever have an office that didn't have an org chart. Well, how many org charts? You guys probably didn't see a lot of org charts in politics, no. but I put in an org chart so that people would understand the hierarchy. I tried to still keep it fairly, uh, what's the word, line responsibility. You could talk to each other, of course. But man, if you were getting into crisis and it was a communications crisis, you sure better make sure the communications people know first. And then you tell this person or you, you know, you wait for, you wait for instruction. When you bring the center in, in particular, you know, you'd get people copying the premier's office on, on stuff that is still ministerial to be decided or, forwarding stuff from the civil service. So, so I would put those kind of protocols uh, in place very quickly and expect people to follow them. Yeah. You talk a lot in the book about sort of the difference in the roles between political staff and civil servants and mm -hmm. how when there's confusion between the two and what the role of political staff is, it can contribute to governments, you know, sort of getting off track. So what do you see sort of as the ideal relationship between the two sides? And what, what do you think, why do you think, um, it can sort of not become that ideal state. And thanks. I, I, I think you're one of the first people to ask me that question because to me, it's such an important part of what political staff have to understand if they're going to be successful in government and, and even, even in opposition. You can get a lot of help from the civil service in opposition if you know what you're doing. But to me, it's the understanding that you have your political elected people who have a certain level of responsibility and then you have the civil service who are basically the folks who will, there will be nobody who will know the file better than them, whatever you're working on, whether it's the, you know, the stake holders or the, the detail of what f previous governments have done. And it's understanding that your job as the political staff is to bridge the needs of the politician with what the civil service already knows. So 
you and then you guys have both done policy work. So the the briefing notes that come, like how many briefing notes would you have sent back? Because the civil service is heavy on one area and you want it widened so that the it will address the political issue that that the minister needs addressed. So it would be, you know, that kind of back and forth. But understanding that your job is to make sure you get those two as close together on the position that you go forward with as possible because as I think I say in Lenham Howell, the last thing you need is to, to go out with a position that then the civil service then says, we never signed off on that. And that's actually not, actually not what we recommended. And particularly if they say that to the premier's office and you know, you're left in that. So it's really understanding that you keep working at it. You don't just tell them what you want them to say. That will never happen. Uh, they'll get you every time. And it's so it's mutual respect, I guess, as what I, if I was going to say one thing, I'd say respect for the understanding of the very important job of the knowledgeable civil service and the needs of the political side of the government. I, I remember sending many briefing notes back and yes. saying, I need more than one option. Yes, exactly. Right. Give me the ability to choose options. You know, like and I, the- I tell that very quick but funny story about, and I mean, now people would probably be mortified about getting the call just before the 1990 campaign from Bob Nixon saying, you got this amount of money and you need to spend it. And of course, they wanted me to put it into winnable writings. And the, the, the deputy minister giving me a list without a total. So I added it up and it was exactly the amount of money. There was no <laughs> options. And I went back in. The funny part was when I went back in and said to the deputy, wait a minute, this is, I asked for options and this is exactly the total. He turned to the ADM who was sitting there and said, see, I told you she wouldn't fall for it. <laughs> right. And they had another file right there. And it was a, it was, it was a test to me. It was a test, you know, right. and, and yeah. we, I had to call them out on it. They were okay with it. Uh, but man, it was, it was worth the, it was worth their shot to see if they could get their their projects through, right? right? Yeah, they have uh, they have all kinds of tricks. My, my other favorite one is they'll give you every bit of information around an issue, except right. for you know, like four pages of stuff. Like here's some lots of interesting facts about the thing you've asked for, uh, but not the thing you've asked for. Yeah. Uh, one thing you noted in, in in your book is that when you came back to Queens Park after after the by election uh, and the court case, and you were a little bit alarmed at the state of the political staff and potentially blurring of political staff seeming more like civil servants. I'm wondering, right. uh, that is something actually that resonated to me as a former civil servant who became yeah. a, a, a political right. staff. Wondering, uh, what do you, um, what was sort of the thinking behind that? So it comes a little bit out of the hyper-partisan world in which we now find ourselves. So I say at some point in Lenham Howell, like if you're going to, as long as you're going to have politicians that are elected under a party banner, they're going to need staff who understand why the party side of things matter. So what what I when I came back what I found was that, you know, in the previous and not just not just Kathleen's uh, government and you could start to see this happening where if your minister was the minister responsible for the north and there's a by-election in the north, that minister is also responsible to try and win that seat based on the vision the government has for the north. But then, of course, it becomes real when you're actually in an election and fighting for that seat. So that's where the, you know, the political meets the government. I just found that there was a real, I, my perception in talking to people was that there was a real attempt to what was called, what was explained to me as professionalize the political staff to the point where it was optional, more optional than I'd ever seen it around whether or not they'd participate in the political side of our reality. Mm -hmm. And I found that very alarming because at the end of the day, the only way you get to stay as government is to win a next election. And the only way you win the election is if you have a strong vision as a party. That's what it simply came down to. And I just, people people would say, no, they weren't going to go out and do political things. Maybe they, maybe they weren't going to be involved in the next election. And I was a little shocked by some of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe switching gears 
Uh, you share a lot in the book about yep. your experience with the charges and trial um, that came out of your role in the Sudbury by-election. Uh, and maybe just quickly for those who don't know, Pat was charged by the OPP under the Elections Act for allegedly uh, exchanging bribes to have the former liberal candidate Andrew Olivier withdraw his nomination and have Glenn Tebow, the NDP MP for Sudbury at the time, become the uh, liberal candidate. So reading all about it, brought me back. So full disclosure, I spent some weekends and vacation days uh, working on that campaign. I remember. Uh, <laughs> and you remind me of the terrible weather yep, yep. and the driving uh, uh, up. Um, but so that part was, it was a fascinating read to, uh, to read about your experience through the trial. Um, I guess maybe I'll start with looking back, sort of knowing what you know now about all that came out of that do you wish you'd done anything differently in your exchanges with the former candidate, Andrew Olivier? Premier Wynn and I talked about that a bunch of times because, you know, it, it, if everybody gets a chance to read that chapter, and that chapter was cut way back, the the I, I wrote Sudbury the only way I could. I basically told the story almost day by day, minute by minute, and and the trial part and the, the, the uh, editor said, you know, this is you're not John Grisham, and this is not a uh, political, this is not a legal thriller. So we got to make this go back to the political of it all. So it took us a while to get there, but I think I, I do still even go through that in my head now. If it had not been the Christmas getting close to the holiday, the Christmas break, if it had not been Glenn Tebow's request that we try to hold his announcement till the end of the year, there's no way that call would have gone to Andrew the day after. I, I would just would have made a plan, a better plan. But you know we. Everybody was so blown away that this, you know, the former NDP MP was was coming right. to run for us. Like, and you know, who would have who would have been had a problem with that? And we felt it was only fair. So, on the fairness side, each time Premier Wynne and I talked about it, on the fairness side, it was only right to tell them so that so that Marianne uh, Matichuk and Andrew Olivier did not spend their holiday selling memberships and misleading people that somehow there would be a nomination meeting. I just never expected the reaction that well, obviously came of it. So right. I don't think I could have. I don't think I could have judged that any other way. But generally, would I would I have told a candidate that quickly what was happening? No, we would have got the whole plan in place and probably told him five minutes before Glenn announced as opposed to giving him a fair bit of lead time. You also talk a bit about the emotional toll of going through that trial and being removed from the party, what was happening. I'm wondering if you can share some of that. Sure. I mean, I, I still experience that emotional toll in some ways because I miss politics very much. I mean, it's it's been such a big part of my life. And as I say, even, even when I was away from it, running a software company for nine years, it called me back all the time. It's usually Greg Sabera making that call, but it called me, <laughs> it called me back regularly. And um, so I, I miss it deeply. You don't really like for a person of politics, as I call myself. But it was it was, the trial part was not so bad because people really were in touch regularly from all parties. Really, senior people from other parties were in touch and sort of saying, "This is just bullshit," right? right. Like a, one and one person called me and said that they created a list of uh, people who would turn themselves in because they'd all made similar calls, right? <laughs> if this thing ever became real, that kind of stuff was happening. Yeah. So that was not so bad. It was shocking to go through the trial and everything, but I had fantastic lawyers and great support. And, and, I, and I was always focused on getting back to the campaign. The emotional toll came when I couldn't stay in the campaign, when it just, when, when I came back and the world was so different, which I don't know why I would have expected it would be the same, but it was so different. And there were, I just couldn't find a way through. And I, I, I couldn't believe that I was going to end up almost failing right to do that and have to leave the campaign so that's where the that's where the toll came and you know in terms of what happened and i would continue to get calls from campaign managers from from candidates from people who were really 
struggling out there and I could do nothing. And that's not me like to, to sit there and not be able to do anything Absolutely. in politics. So that's, that was very hard and still remains a tough part of that whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. So switching gears, maybe again, a bit, sure. um, you've been involved in a ton of liberal leadership contests. In fact, yeah. your book tells the really interesting story of the race you helped lead uh, to make Lynn McLeod the first woman to lead a major political party in Ontario. So uh, we're curious for your take on the current leadership race um, sure. going on in the OLP. What do you make <laughs> of the candidates and the campaigns they're running? Yeah, I have no take. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I've I've talked to a few candidates, not many. Talk more again to some of the folks that are running campaigns because I know them and they've just they've sought advice here and there. Um, you know, I, I think you guys probably know that I was a big uh, proponent of one person, one vote. I really wanted us to make a change. I wanted us to take more time and really think about as a party what we wanted to what we wanted to look at look like and what we wanted to achieve and then and then who's best to lead that vision instead we just kind of fell into the same old okay we've got to have a leadership and we've got to have it fast and so we're you know we're in that world you know i think i i i i'm anxious to see the debates because nice. I, I just want to see what what the actual visions that are put forward and i'm not a policy person in any way shape or form so when i say vision i mean for the party i mean what after 15 years this party needs some pretty serious renewal from the ground up we are you know we have no money we have very few members and the folks that bought memberships, yeah, it was great, 30000 but they'll be gone right after that, right? They won't hold. They never do. So we really have to look at how we're going to grow our base again. And actually, what, what our base, even who do we want our base to be in this hyper-partisan world? So I'm a little disappointed that we didn't kind of do more of that first, but I think it'll be an, an engaging debate. You know, I, I don't I don't believe there's a, I mean, obviously, Steve Del Duca is the front runner, but I don't believe it's over by a long shot. Coteau is obviously with his numbers in the, in the game, and yeah. we don't know what's happening with the yet. But the thing about a delegated convention is lots happens on the floor. As I explained in the 1990, lots happens on the floor and behind the scenes. And there's a lot of discussions one-on-one -on -one to happen yet. So we'll right. see. Uh, of the the sort of the three, I would say dark horses, or I guess four now with Brenda Hollingsworth. Yeah. Um, uh, are there any sort of that are, are 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 standing out or that you'd keep your eye on? I'm I'm frowning at Chris asking me that question. <laughs> we, uh, we don't have to yeah. do Yeah, I'm not. I am. I am neutral. But look, and I'm going to say. I mean, I don't. Anybody watches my Twitter? I am a huge fan of of Kate Graham's. I think. I think she is going to have the voice in the debate that will call out uh, some of the questions that need to be put forward and put on the table. I don't. I don't understand why as party. We're not afraid to have a real good hard look at ourselves, even what happened. I mean, we won campaigns in 2011 and 2014 that we weren't supposed to win. Those are great things that we did. How did we do that? We lost in 2018. Well, okay, you know, after f almost 15 years, you lose campaigns. So, you know, let's let's talk all that through. But I think, she, you know, she's a very brave, courageous woman who who has a lot to say and, and then, you know, has a heart, a big heart, and that's coming through in a lot of ways. And so it'll be interesting to see. I think she can hold her own against the uh, against the elected folks, even though she's never been elected, and that mm -hmm. and so she'll be a fresh voice in that way. So maybe just picking up on that, um, you make a comment in the book about that the 2018 strategy should have shifted to um, save the save furniture, the furniture yep. faster. Is your impression that the entire campaign strategy? was off and it should have been that strategy from the start or just that it should have been pivoted within the campaign faster? It, it should have been the strategy two years out is right. my position. So save the furniture is a phrase we use when you think you're falling apart in the middle of the campaign. But when you're at 10 or 12% in the polls, and that's just not on Premier Wynn, that's on all of us, right? Mm -hmm. When you're at 10 or 12% in the polls, 
And you're everything you're trying, you know, David Hurley and I have talked about everything we tried wasn't moving the numbers. Uh, I saw that with Ignatieff and those nothing, nothing was uh, the only thing that was going to move the numbers was potentially an election. So do you go in believing that that election uh, scenario could somehow move you that far that fast? Or do you go in understanding that there are probably probably a different imperative, which is to we never talked about party status because we never believed we couldn't have party status, right? The Ontario Liberal Party. So, but it would be like saving as many seats as you possibly could. And that's a tough discussion, but we have the discussion every campaign about targeting ridings. And you know, you know, that that reality didn't seem to have set in anywhere near early enough. Um, so yeah, you, you can't in, in four weeks you can't pivot at that level. You just yeah. you just cannot. Uh, certainly not four days either. So that's what I think was was uh, how I would have gone at it differently. Look, I wasn't there. Uh, I'm doing the armchair quarterback stuff that I always hated, but <laughs> but I'm just saying that I know that's a reality that I would have uh, pushed hard to uh, to have in play much, much sooner. One of the questions that, or something that I, I heard you say on Pakin was that when folks elected uh, Kathleen Wynne originally, it was sort of on a change mandate and that people, you don't think people saw the change. And I think one of my favorite armchair quarterback discussions with other liberals now is why did we get to that 12% yeah. Uh, that, that 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 sort of low point. I'm curious if you have any sort of more uh, more more comments on that. I- so I'm not sure again exactly how that what that when I was there for some of that right. So uh, you know, but I when we go back to the processes and protocol stuff, it just seemed like that was such an exciting campaign because we were able to convince people that Kathleen Wynne would be the change, right? And it, and even though woman, lesbian, all that stuff that we were so worried about, but running ad and other things we were getting her people to kind of take a second look. And they didn't like what they were seeing in the other parties either. But so they were really taking a second look and we were able to capitalize on that. That was so fantastic and fascinating to push through all that and win a majority. But then we just, we just went back to same old, same old. And I wish we had taken that same outlook that it had to have been almost radically different in, in how we governed. And it sure would have meant slowing down a lot in terms of not making so many decisions so fast. And it would have meant having a lot more people at the table for the decisions, which is, I would argue, Kathleen Wynne's natural way of doing things. But we then became a government that maybe kind of understood it might be in its last mandate. And we were trying to do so much so fast. And if you weren't at the table for a certain discussion, they just moved right through, right? You didn't stop to get mm-hmm. more people to get to wait and get everybody's views before you went ahead. And I just think that's a that's a real downfall for any government. And, and it would have been nice to have two or three specific areas that we were going to try and make change and and just focus on those and not not this very broad band of things. I think the other thing that's happened as as governments, as people start to look at government differently, is that they no longer look to government for what you what they will do for them because they just expect that now. If you're the government, you should give me a school. You should you should uh, make sure I get a hospital and I'm not in a wait line. That's your job. I'm not going to reward you for that. It's the vision, right. right? And and we didn't articulate vision that much. We just we were just doing 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 doing, which was great on so many levels and things had to get done, but. And then, you know, in comes the Tories and rolls half of it back. But um, but I think that that we just didn't have sort of that big two or three things we were going to do at all costs and do well and make sure that the electorate knew where we were going from there. Maybe just picking up on that, I do think I will give the federal Trudeau liberals credit for the ability to, below the surface, 
still do a million things. Like they yeah, are, they have a right. lot going but on, but their vision and the narrative that they are able to put forward pretty consistently, or at least through this last election, to your point, is two or three things that the right. public can digest. And I think we never got that right when right. we were in government. And we, we as you, the, you raised the point about announcing everything, right? We didn't. Yeah. Why do we need to announce everything? We had so many. And often Kathleen was, not often, mostly Kathleen was the face. And, you know, that's when, when I think about how much the hate was aimed at her. Well, she was the face of almost every small or large. She was there. And, you know, you see more, and obviously they're signaling, the federal government's signaling already. Christian's out there a lot, and we're starting to see a very different view there. But I agree with you. I think their the vision, within, we never lost the sense of the vision of the federal government. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe just last question, Doug Ford's first year, year and a half now, his approval rating is in the 20s, maybe teens, faster, I think, than any, the yep. fall, faster than anybody anticipated. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you spoke about the dynamic that set in with Ignatieff and Kathleen where no, there was nothing you could do to recover once you get to a certain point. What's your take? Is is Ford recoverable or are they one and done? I'd say that uh, this is where our leadership decision will be critical. And I would say that this assumption that just because we get a leader, that means we're going to win is a, is a big, and thanks for bringing that back. Because to me, that's another big thing. We, we are so leadership, leader dependent that we think we get a good leader and he's doing Ford's doing badly be automatic. It's not going to be automatic if our base is where it is. So Ford, his base is pretty strong. I, I, you know, but obviously he's looking to pivot. I don't think his Captain Canada stuff is sustainable. I just don't think he's got it in him. No, Mr. Yeah. National Unity. Yeah, Mr. Uh, you know, this is suddenly this some sort of new thing and you all get Toronto Maple Leaf jerseys. So we're all in this together <laughs> stuff. I, I was floored by that. I, but clearly they are attempting to pivot. Right. And I'm here, you know, you do hear a lot of internal strife within their own party about whether or not they want to even go into a campaign with him. So that we'll see how that all plays out. But no, I don't, I would never say one and done just yet. Uh, he's got a long, it's too much of a runway yet yeah. could pivot. But I, I personally, I don't think that guy has it in him. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> all right. Well, Pat, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Happy to do it. Thrilled to do it. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Pat Sarbar so much for coming on. This has been one of my favorites because it gets into some of the weird mechanics of political work that often gets overlooked in the coverage of what politics means to people. That is probably as it should be, but um, it's nice to talk shop uh, from time to time. And uh, there's no one better in the world to talk shop with than Pat Sarbara. Um, you can get Let Him Howl at a lot of places. I got mine on Kindle, but I checked. It's at Indigo. You can get it on Amazon. It is published by Harbor Publishing. And now having finished the book, I highly recommend it as a stocking stuffer for the political junkie in your life. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andre, Alexi White, and myself, Chris Martin. Philip Askew is our recording engineer. Aisha Anwar and Harriman Mundy do our comms and our research. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. We honor and respect the treaties that are still alive today and recognize that Indigenous people across Canada must still fight for their rights in the settler colonialist society. We have one more episode to go before the end of the year. It will be out next week, and then we're done for 2019. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll see you next week.